I think that's what's exciting is that if you put yourself in different situations and you think about it from a creative lens, which could be anywhere from sketching on your napkin, some doodles, numbers, or even like outlining a process, that itself is the creative process. And I think if more healthcare professionals put themselves in those uncomfortable moments of like, maybe I'll take an Adobe class or like sit with a bunch of pottery designers that I don't know, it, it could be inspirational in other ways. Happy New Year. This is our first episode of Design Lab for 2022. Sign up for our newsletter if you haven't done so. We created this exclusive newsletter for you, our listeners, each week. You'll find things that we mentioned in the show, articles about stuff we love, and other interesting tidbits that we want to share with you. How do you find the newsletter? You can go to our Twitter account, at Pod. There, you will find a link pinned to the top of our profile post, or you can go to bit.ly backslash newsletter. Today's guest is Grace June. She is the CEO of a Smithsonian National Award-winning nonprofit organization called Open Style Lab, and she's an assistant professor at the University of Georgia, where she researches creative practices that are inclusive of disability, and it manifests into outcomes such as accessible graphic design and adapted fashion. She is committed to designing with disability groups, and that's reflected in her latest publication called Universal Materiality. It's an anticipated book on fashion and disability, and it's going to be released next year in 2023. Grace has been invited to speak on disability and design in settings all over the world. She's been featured in Forbes, New York Times Style, Washington Post, and she's even been invited to the White House and ABC Channel News. Grace is a proud alumnus of both the Parsons School of Design and Rhode Island School of Design. She previously held positions as a UX designer at Samsung Electronics and an assistant professor at the New School, Parsons School of Fashion. Grace is the recipient of the National Endowment for the Arts. She serves on jury committees and organizations that advance the arts and design. Omicron cases have been skyrocketing all over the world, especially in the Northeast here in the U.S. Last night, I worked um, in the hospital. Over 25% of our patients in the emergency department had COVID. It's the most amount of COVID I've seen during the pandemic. I've never seen the emergency department this crowded before. Our volumes have been crazy. Uh, It's been stressful to work there, and I appreciate doing this podcast because it gives me a creative outlet from the chaos. I get to meet some exciting guests and get a break from the COVID madness. We get pumped when people review us on Apple Podcasts. We got a new review this week from MS3 with UX Interest, who finds the guests super interesting. And that is how you support the show. Go on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, leave us a review, or go on to Spotify if you're listening to this on your phone. Open it up and rate us. Thank you for everyone who's done that. We actually have a rating now on Spotify, so that's super cool. I have been looking forward to talking with Grace June for a while. I've been following her work at Open Style Lab for years. We talk about co-design, the definition of inclusivity, and why accessible design 
is better design. Grace, John, welcome to Design Lab. I've been following your work for years. So stoked you're on the show. Thanks, Vaughn. It's good to see you, especially during the pandemic. I think it's really hard to keep connections, even remotely. We all get Zoom fatigue, but this was one thing I was looking forward to. Yeah. So you have this new role teaching at the University of Georgia. Can you tell us about what you're currently doing right now? Yeah, my position is an assistant professor of graphic design at the Lamar School of Dodd. I think most of my work has, so far since I just started, been looking at how to introduce graphic design principles for early students who are actively looking to concentrate or major in graphic design. And then I teach a course called Digital Platforms, which is about app design and user experience. And so those are the two things I feel excite me, but also really relate to my own professional practice. I haven't been in industry. Yeah. And you're still the CEO of Open Style Lab. Is that correct? Yeah. Open Style Lab, for better or for worse, has not left my life. It's a nonprofit. Uh, as you know, it's a 501c3 nonprofit that started at MIT in 2014. And we've grown since with the mission to make style accessible for all people regardless of cognitive or physical disability. Can you talk about the origin story of Open Style Lab? Like this concept out there, like, did you think of it? Like, how did that happen? I took over more of its growth. And I think having an initial idea, and you probably know this well, it's not enough for anything to happen. It really just needs a lot more support. Um, That's the easiest part of it, the idea. (laughs) The idea is the easy part. And I think For me, I was just like, oh, this could be so much more. So many designers would be excited about it. And it started as a public service project, teaming engineers, designers, and occupational therapists with a person with a disability to co-design mostly like wearable solutions, which I'll get into about why clothes are not accessible for people with disabilities. But that's all great, I think, in theory and an initial attempt or prototype for a program. But to scale that and to continue growing that, and I think developing relationships is probably what I've contributed most to the organization. Mm. And in doing my research for this podcast, uh, you have a quote, I think it's from another podcast where you say, clothing becomes a barrier for greater accessibility. Can you talk about that? What does that mean? Yeah, like I'm pretty sure many people who are listening onto this podcast have either loved someone, know someone, or experienced maybe closely or not so closely a person with a disability. And whether that's someone who is injured from like a football accident to someone who is experiencing paralysis from either by birth or from cognitive or other disabilities, like there's always some sort of story. And in the United States, statistically, there's one out of five people that identify having a disability. Uh, One out of five. Yeah, it's a lot. That is a lot. I didn't realize it was that high. Yeah, there's cognitive. There's also invisible or I guess when I mean invisible, meaning sometimes hearing impairment or disabilities are not always considered physical. And of course, we, we could all kind of relate to something. The point I'm trying to say is that disability is part of our life cycle and to remove the stigma that's associated with the word has been some of the research I do. But all in all, I I think why clothes are not accessible is because if you have 
limited dexterity, paralysis, or if you, for myself, got into an accident momentarily and you can't unbutton your shirt or it takes you 30 minutes to do that and you miss your podcast interview (laughs) or you miss a date, like all of those things hinder your expression and ability to have an independent lifestyle. And I sometimes think that most of the time we may attribute that to the person as like a health case or like a disease or a disability when it's really about what designs enable us rather than make us inaccessible or hinder our progress. So that led me to thinking about like more wearable solutions. While I love AI technology and all that, I was like, we can't even get basic clothes. Like just clothes to be more accessible, like food, you know, shelter, of course, the ADA Act, right? With architecture and having places like ramps and elevators be more accessible is prominent in architecture. But there hasn't been any kind of ADA compliance for clothing and that as an opportunity for design and people in health to come together. Yeah, I, I love that material is your design medium. And an important principle that I've seen in Open Style Lab is this principle of co-design that you talked about. What is co-design? How, how would you define that? Yeah, co-design is tricky. I think because I'm going to over-process this and overthink this because it's in my nature. But when you think of like service design, you think of it in a similar approach where you're designing for someone, or you're doing things together equally, hopefully, or contributing your side, but it's never that smooth. And it's never that like cookie cutter. And so when I talk about co-design, I talk about it as more of that tension and that experience of literally relationships, like how people get together to talk about creative processes. And for most of the part, I've seen people I think have arguments or disagreements or sometimes similarities like a engineer would say uh, a user or someone who is in user behavior, whereas someone in fashion might say it's a client or someone who's a wearer. All of those terminologies are similar, but yet they're different in their practice. And so when you get people together that is using different languages and different skill sets, trying to make or, you know, think about a common objective, it gets exciting, but also there's um, some tension, I think, (laughs) in the process. What does the co-design process look like in Open Style Lab? Can you talk about a project that illustrates that principle? Yeah, I think most recently, maybe a recent project, we've been working on research journals. So every month we had outreach to groups or people with disabilities And we tried to highlight some of the more important needs or things that should draw attention from the disability community related to design. So each journal topic was based on that. It's collaborative because at one stage, you need to have the interviews and you need to have the space, whether it's remotely or in person, to have those discussions. How that space is curated, uh, discussed, navigated, uh, as well as who's in that space. We're all determining factors. Sometimes you've had people or participants that were uh, mixed group, diverse abilities. Sometimes we've had it very specific to young kids who had hearing impairment from a school that wanted to work with us. So I think each of that determines some of the outcome, but the goal was to contribute to a monthly journal about their insights to share more with people. What are the concerns, right, from 
these various groups. Mm. And so I would say that's a collaborative project because it has so many stakeholders. And of course, anyone who's doing a podcast would know there's a lot of editing. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of recording. There's the people in it. It's the same thing. And did I see some of those journals? They're on your website. Yeah. Right? You could purchase them. Yes. Oh, and cool. each purchase goes to, of course, OSL. Um, hopefully we could hire more interns with disabilities was a big goal of mine this year and something I'd like to continue. So any any support would be great. Yeah. So you could go to www.openstylelab.org so you could mm -hmm. purchase those journals and you could donate as well. They're 51C3. So definitely check it out. Is there just like tension with materiality or clothing, let's say, of choosing between like function versus style? Yes, that's an excellent question. Or functional aesthetics, or I guess things that look good versus how they actually operate, which I think everyone's experienced with their closet <laughs> at some point or another. A lot of the previous outcomes at Open Style Lab and some of the work I do focused on like a design that was either wearable or like a product that was usable related to the body. And because they were tangible products, they had, of course, materials or functionality. The most important concept I think I hope any of my students or people I've worked with took away was that balance of having function, but not compromising style. And that's really hard because when you translate sometimes style or aesthetics into function, they're not always obvious until you have discussions with who's using it. For example, I remember inviting one of our past participants with a disability and she mentioned she definitely wanted more black or brown or dark colored pants. And when I asked why, it's because she's like, if I go to an outdoor concert and you know, accidents happen where there's no restroom, I wanna make sure that color is acting or functioning as a mode of protection for me. Mm -hmm. So this is where I think aesthetics and function kind of collide. That's not just, you know, the actual material, of course, that functions as something or it's the lace of a blouse. <laughs> yeah. And one of um, the examples I love is the one with uh, Kieran Kern that we put in the book, Health Design Thinking, where uh, she uses a wheelchair, but she needed a, a jacket that would, that she could easily like put on and, and take off, but that was also stylish. And the, I thought that was just a great example of designing with a user and not compromising between either function or style. Yeah. And I think we couldn't ignore that, especially with Karen, because of the color and the type of style that was very relevant to her culture, but also personal taste. So this is where, you know, we could definitely discuss more about style being a form of self-identity or self-expression. Mm -hmm. And in an open style lab, we see this because we see how empowering it is when you are able to have clothes that you can access to, when you are able to have things that function and work for your unique or diverse body. And I think where those kind of attributes really kind of collide is not just at open style lab, but at intersections with most designers, but also like people in health practice, right? Things, people you normally wouldn't collaborate with, which I hope will lead to collaborations. Yeah. I love this quote by you. You say accessible design is better design. Can you talk about that more? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. I think if 
everyone or more people could use something, the better, uh, especially without having to have it be iterative all the time. Like usually when you think about products that are launched, accessibility is an afterthought. And then they're like, hey, let's add like this pocket for people with wheelchair users. And I'm like, no, it doesn't look good. It should have been added prior (laughs) Yeah, as like being more integrated with the actual design. So I think the more people can consider accessibility opportunities prior to creating something, the better. And of course, you could always adapt and reiterate, you know, something, but it's not the same because you don't really include the user in that process, obviously, if it wasn't accessible to begin with. So that's why I vouch it's better design. Yeah. Because so often it's just an afterthought. It's after you make a current design, then it's like, oh, well, then how do you make this design accessible to certain individuals? I, I love that. I love that statement. You're working on a new book on fashion and disability that's going to come out uh, in 2023. Yay! Uh, yes. Yeah. I, I can't wait to buy that book. Can you give us a little foretaste on on what's going to be in there and what you're going to write about? Yeah, mostly I think it'll be about inclusive design. As you know, in theory, it means design that is inclusive of many people in practice that is applied to fashion, uh, specifically people with disabilities. So disability and fashion design will be some of the topics I'll be writing about. And it'll highlight some of the awesome stories from people I've got to work with in my academic experience, in my professional experience, and of course, through Open Style Lab. So it'll be a conduit of all of these small episodes of examples that I hope people could take away on like, I don't know how to make pants accessible. I don't know what you're talking about. What does it look like? (laughs) Here's an example. And here's the person that it was designed with and for. Um, And most importantly, I'm going to try to include more, I think, references that are of not just Asian culture and scholars, but like Korean scholars in general. I know there are some great disability movements and even startups that are happening in Korea that I think deserve attention for scholarly work. So I've been reaching out to some folks from universities in Korea to be like, I know you have this. I know you wrote something like 1998 (laughs) Uh, and I need help translating, but I would love to cite your work. Just to show the breadth of disability and design when it comes to fashion is not just about, you know, one type of narrative, but it's really encompassing many other people's thoughts with cultural influences. I love that. For those who may be hearing this term inclusive design for the first time, how would you define inclusive design? I think inclusive design is, uh, in theory, design that is inclusive of different culture, different races, different abilities, as diverse as possible. It's almost like universal design theory, where uh, you're making design that is universally you know, used or could be accessible for all people. In theory, both of them sound great. I'm more interested about the process and the practice and how it's applied. So I want to show in my future work and hopefully more through this book or upcoming writing and work, how do you see it? How do you experience it? What is that? So maybe more people could accomplish and work on these fields. Because you have a lot of people and organizations and companies coming up to you, right? Asking you to educate themselves on inclusive design, right? Yeah. Some that are really nice and I think end up becoming great collaborators. Others, you know, I'll put it out there. They just want to pick your brain 
And I just want to say, go to page 45. Uh, <laughs> and this is uh -huh. like really just self-advocacy for your own work and the value you have for creative work. That when I share these things, I definitely hope that people can contribute with you. It's not just about what's the latest information or it's really hard to detach giving information from the person that I've worked with and the stories that I've seen. It doesn't seem fair, in my opinion, to just give that to a company that's like Fortune 500. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious about your design journey. Uh, you went to the Rhode Island School of Design for undergrad. And did you go into a design school thinking, hey, this is a type of work I want to get involved in later about design for inclusivity and accessible design. And yeah, so I'm kind of curious, like how that happened. Yeah, I think I was not as equipped as I was now. When I was a freshman and sophomore, I was exploring like many other students. I was probably more lost than most students, but I loved just making. And when I chose graphic design, I chose it mostly actually because of graphic design history, but also like its value for translating words into like abstract meaning through form. And that's what attracted me the most. It wasn't until my senior year that I really thought about accessibility from personal experience. And then when I went into industry the following year, I worked at Samsung, you know, shout out to all my Korean folks in Korea that own a Samsung device or a washing machine. <laughs> I really understood what it meant to design something for more people. And they weren't just thinking about different countries. They were thinking about different races, different people with various abilities. And there was even a phone that was targeted for the elderly. So I was like, I have no idea about the elderly other than my grandma. That went down to more of like practical design work that's applied. But prior in school, yeah, I was still exploring just like all my students are still exploring. And it's okay. <laughs> yeah, definitely okay. You and I are both Korean. Did your um, parents understand what your... Um, studying or your approach? Because my parents would have uh, been like, what, you're not becoming a doctor? What's going on? Yeah, I think I was very lucky to have parents who are just really free. And I might have given them no choice because when I was young, I totally vandalized our bathroom with like graffiti and things. So I think when they saw <laughs> it, there was probably a moment of horror of like, we shouldn't ignore this. We should probably take this as a sign because <laughs> I was like eight or nine. Um, and I did that multiple times. So it was probably like a scary horror movie, seeing a child draw all over your walls and created things. So I think at an early age, they came to accept based on my behavior that I would go to art school. They just didn't know, like most parents come up to me today. What can you do going yeah. to art and design school? And I'm like, that's the point. You find out as you go. <laughs> and there's a bit of entrepreneurial spirit in you as you go. And they get scared. <laughs> I got a chance to go to Korea a couple of years ago. And I was really uh, taken aback by how stylish Koreans were and this kind of design culture that seemed to have developed since it was like 15 years before I was there. And is that was just like my cursory observation and but it seems like there is like this design culture that's developing in in South Korea that's maturing 
Yeah, absolutely. I think they, like most countries, probably have to reconcile some of their historic aesthetics, you know, things that are really well known in early pottery or like hanbok styles to things that are like new, because they definitely have a generation that has lived overseas or have been born and raised in different countries. So I just think that naturally that kind of juxtaposition will influence Korean design. And you see that with some of the fashion or street fashion, but I think also some in architecture as well. A question I love to ask guests is how might we design a healthier life? And that could be you personally or us collectively. And it's a little bit open-ended. So yeah. So how might we design a healthier life? Yeah. I thought about that question prior. Like I thought about lifestyle rather than just life. And so to me, that includes the things you wear, your surroundings, anything that's tactile or visual or things that stimulate, you know, your senses and thoughts. So for me, it pretty much means things that are peaceful and quiet. (laughs) And if that is helping me process and have some time to, you know, be kind to yourself is kind of the one of the takeaways I wish people would take, especially during this pandemic, is to like cultivate that sense of space and that sense of what is healthy for you still is, you know, in progress. We change. Maybe when I was in my teens, I would have thought like grunge music was healthy for me, but today I, I'm not. <laughs> and so whatever that I think brings you a space of clarity, harmony, and I think just a good feeling makes you be creative, that I would think is for healthier living. Or do you have some rituals or patterns in your life that help you be more creative or get you into a a creative mode? Yeah, I have a few. One is to take a step away from design because I think everything I look at, I immediately start to jump about its form or like, why is this tea kettle designed this way? And I get critical and have a self-analysis by myself at like nine in the morning. So I try to step away from that and maybe do something that I'm not used to doing, whether it's like gardening outside or just going out for a walk, things that are not in my daily routine. That also I think helps because if you're so focused on like a creative project, I'm pretty sure writer's block is like similar, but creatives get blocked in trying to think about an idea all the time. And it stresses you out when it doesn't come to fruition. So for me, I think it unconsciously helps me take a break away from that process. And when I come back to it, I feel more energized to be able to carry that idea through. And it helps me think about other things. You have worked with healthcare professionals at OpenSciLab. And I'm curious to know, what advice do you have for us who are working in healthcare? Because Healthcare is often this black hole of design, uh, whether it's a product, a service, or experience. This concept of co-designing with patients, we don't really do that well. <laughs> so in, in terms of you being an expert in design, what advice do you have for us? Oh, that's such a tough question. I mean, one is to just reach out. Like when I first started to reach out to disability groups, I had no business going into a spinal cord group for people talking about like lingerie. Like that was not in my bucket list of to do, but I was like, you didn't study that at RISD? No. So (laughs) 
I think that's what's exciting is that if you put yourself in different situations and you think about it from a creative lens, which could be anywhere from sketching on your napkin, some doodles, numbers, or even like outlining a process, that itself is the creative process. Mm. And I think if more healthcare professionals put themselves in those uncomfortable moments of like, maybe I'll take an Adobe class or like sit with a bunch of pottery designers that I don't know, it, it could be inspirational in other ways. I never think designer arts are quite linear. There are probably, you might say, rules or best how to do tips, like a typography or like hierarchy of information or whatever. But nobody says it needs to be done in a specific way. And I think maybe if healthcare professionals could understand that kind of chaos, it might be kind of fun and yeah. creative. Yeah. It- it seems that designers have such a higher tolerance for ambiguity in healthcare. <laughs> Our tolerance is very low for that. And often the more, I guess, older you get and more mature and expert in healthcare, the less willingness for us to be put in uncomfortable positions because we're always like the expert in the room and the leader. And I think we're not used to getting vulnerable later as we become ultra specialized. So I, I love that piece of advice for us. Yeah. Or just think of it as, you know, I'm sure I'm speaking maybe too general. You would know this cause you're a doctor, but you still need to brush up on like current things that are happening and like re read new articles or like practices, right? Just think of it the same way. Like if you're not continually learning, I think you've ended some sort of component in your life to be proactive, right? Like you should be continually learning about new things and design is no different. It's just a, a little bit more ambiguous than, than, than probably preferred. <laughs> yeah. How do you encourage people to express themselves visually if they don't feel comfortable with that or don't have this practice of doing that? Cause I, you know, teach design to medical students and encourage them to prototype and represent their ideas visually, but often a comment I get is like, oh, well, I'm not like, I don't really know how to draw. So I'm going to try to put that off to the person in my group who is more more creative and who's more designy. And I get that response a lot. And how do you help change that mindset in the students that you have taught? Yeah, there's a few methods I use. Most important, I think I just observe for the first good, like 30 minutes, if I have students working on something, to see the dynamics. But the second is, you know, I'm sure you've seen this also, I read about it, like in the Dada movement, you would write something or draw something and pass it to another person. And similar approaches, I've done that to kind of force whether it's beautiful or not to them, or they feel qualified. Just to say that's the whole point of collaboration. It doesn't need to be perfect, but you need to at least contribute like an arm (laughs) if you're going to draw something and or whatever form that it's going to take. That I found is helpful to break apart, you know, just having one person do one drawing or the aesthetics for the team. Other things that are more technical, I think definitely uh, working with a designer is helpful because Mm -hmm. of some more technical experiences like in fashion, cutting, pattern making, actual making of clothes. I never learned fashion. I studied graphic design, but I learned it in a factory next to a lot of seamstresses who kept telling me I made a 
gigantic amount of mistakes, but because I was free labor, they were so happy to have me. And I think that's the best way. It's just really the best way is putting yourself out there and making those mistakes. Yeah, I love that. And one of my favorite design hacks I've seen that you do is the during the pandemic was the face mask templates. That oh yeah, was published by the Washington Post. Yeah, the Washington Post reached out because I think they definitely wanted to put something out there for the mass public to feel somewhat comforted that you know if someone was thinking about how to make masks and it was really scary because it was at the height of the pandemic. I luckily lived right next to the garment district at that time. And some of the stores were still operating. So I literally asked them to drop off fabrics that I knew they had. And it was like corner around my house, take those fabrics. I would prototype and try to make uh, and think about how it could be more accessible, like for one of my board members. And just in general, like if I used what I had and I remember using like a piece of you know, the wire part of an umbrella, like a broken umbrella. I used it and I bent it so it could hook on to like pull the ear strings through the fabric uh, to make yeah. the, the, I guess, like the ends or the elastic parts like come through and become attached. And I had to be creative. I didn't have those things. I had a sewing machine, luckily. And I think I tried to explain some of the processes. Even if you didn't have a sewing machine, uh, you could still stitch by hand. It'll just take longer. But if you need a protection or to make something quick, how would you start? Some of the big questions I got, of course, and probably negative remarks were around the sewing machine <laughs> and just the lack of access to materials at that time. Like, you know, we didn't have toilet paper available around CVS. God forbid someone was looking for elastic string when at the height of the pandemic, you know, you're looking for masks. But I think I tried to offer some alternatives on just like being creative in your house. You don't know what cotton, like breathable cotton is. Most of your curtains are. <laughs> so take a look at it. Look at the labels, right? I think most people were just like, what kind of cotton is going to protect me? <laughs> that was such a cool uh, template. How long did it take you to do that? It took me like about a week. That's it. Wow. Yeah, it took me a week, but I had about a month of like prior phone calls and people that like first it was from... Um, NYU Langone and other people I knew in the disability community that were asking about it. So I asked them back, like, what are some things that you think are needed in masks and if we could support? So we actually ended up making, I think, about 250, like a few weeks after that post happened in the Washington uh, Post News. And I donated that to United Spinal through the mayor's office. So that was just me crunching out spring remote teaching and making masks to donate <laughs> to people. So that was, I think it's part of the process, right? You try, you respond. I think that's probably the closest I can get to design impact for a need that just happened now. That's so cool. And, and you can still look at that, right? It's on your website, yeah. right? It's You have a personal website. What's the link? Oh, it's just gracegem.com. Uh cool. And have it there. It's also on OpenStyleLab, so you can just download the template and try it out. We asked a lot of improvements since then. I haven't improved it since then, since this year has been crazy, but always open to new suggestions. Cool. Well, de definitely check it out. Gracian, I'm such a fan of your work and OpenStyleLab and can't wait for your new book to come out. And thanks, for, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. 
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Grace June. You could find her on Instagram. Her handle is Grace H J U N. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. There's two ways to do that. You can go to bit.ly backslash design lab newsletter, or you can follow us on Twitter at design lab pod. And at the top of our Twitter page, there is a link for the website and reach out to me by Twitter or Instagram on Twitter. I can be found at B O N K U on Instagram at D R B O N K U. Remember to rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you really love the show, leave us a comment. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. We will see you next week.